It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. I'm joined in the studio today by a returning guest co-host, Judge Christopher Sockwell. Judge Sockwell is a circuit court judge for the 22nd District, appointed to that position by Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam in 2018. A graduate of David Lipscomb University and the University of Tennessee College of Law, Judge Sockwell was previously an attorney in private practice before being appointed to the bench to represent the circuit of Giles, Lawrence, Murray, and Wayne Counties in Tennessee. Judge Sockwell is a keen student of history and a welcome addition to History's Hook. Judge Sockwell, welcome back to the show. Tom, it's great to be back. Together, Judge Sockwell and I are honored to have joining us in the studio Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Holly Kirby. A graduate of Columbia Central High School, Justice Kirby received both her undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Memphis. She practiced law in Memphis with the firm of Birch, Porter, and Johnson and was active in politics and community service. She became a partner in that firm in 1990. In 1995, she was appointed to the bench in the Tennessee Court of Appeals, the first woman to sit on that court. After spending nearly 19 years there, she was sworn into the Tennessee Supreme Court by Governor Bill Haslam in 2014. Justice Holly Kirby, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you for having me here. Before we get started talking about your interesting and significant career, uh, you've served as a judge either in the Intermediate Appellate Court or the Supreme Court since 1995. Looking back on your time on the bench, what is the most significant change that you have seen take place in Tennessee law that comes as a direct decision you've made or helped make as a member of the judiciary? Well, you start off with a tough question, don't you, Mr. Price? Um, I would say that some of the most significant Mm -hmm. cases that I've handled throughout my career, um, when I was on the intermediate appellate court, uh, Tennessee is one of the few states in the nation whose intermediate appellate court is divided between civil and criminal. I was on the civil side. The most serious cases that I heard on the civil side were termination of parental rights. Um, that's the civil equivalent of the death penalty. Um, And we continue to hear those cases on the Tennessee Supreme Court. They have evolved over time. Uh, uh, I think that uh, cases now, uh, as a result, and I have had a number of significant uh, cases on termination of parental rights, um, including when I was on the Supreme Court, the first uh, case that uh, first opinion that I authored as a Supreme Court justice was on the statutes that govern uh, termination of parental rights, and uh, they have become more balanced over time. Uh, I'm, and I am very gratified to 
see that. Um, when I first came on uh, the Court of Appeals, there was, I think, a feeling that if uh, somebody had had their children taken away from them, uh, even temporarily by the state of Tennessee, then uh, we needed to quickly terminate their parental rights and uh, get that child adopted. Over time, uh, that has become more balanced, realizing that some parents have terrible issues. Uh, For example, substance abuse is just epidemic uh, and certainly uh, deeply affects people's ability to parent their children. I think that over time, uh, the courts have become to realize have come to realize uh, that um, uh, parents need help sometimes, and that there is real damage to children, even if their parents are deeply flawed. There is real damage to children when they are removed from having contact with their parents. So uh, the system has become more balanced to give parents real help and also even in adoption cases to allow the child to uh, remain in some contact with the biological parents, even if the biological parent is not able to take care of the child. Um, There is a tie there that is, um, we can't deny that. So uh, in uh, certainly there are plenty of cases where it's such an unhealthy relationship that it needs to be, uh, just needs to be terminated for everybody's best interest. But over time, I would say those types of cases are uh, the ones that I've seen the most positive change on, and uh, I feel like um, my uh, uh, adjudicating of those cases has helped. It's a hugely weighty matter that affects thousands of people across Tennessee. How do you mentally approach a decision that may have a momentous impact upon the nearly 7 million citizens of of Tennessee? How do you approach that? So in in that particular example, are you taking the advice of experts in the field of social work? Are are you learning trends in the roles of parents and the effects of children on homes that are are breaking up. How how do you approach that? Yes, I do. Um, uh, I I think in any of the cases that we decide, um, uh, the most important thing that I have tried to keep in mind uh, during my career, uh, unlike Judge Sockwell, he's a trial judge. He sees the people who appear in front of him. An appellate judge just hears appeals. We're not conducting trials, not hearing witnesses. So we get the record that a judge like Judge Sockwell generates from hearing testimony, from his uh, rulings in the in the in the courtroom. The end result of that is I don't see the people whose lives I am affecting. And often the disputes that we are seeing are, it may be the most devastating moment of somebody's life. Um, So uh, the principle that I have tried to keep in mind is retaining my humanity. Uh, It's not 
just an intellectual exercise. It's affecting people's lives. And I do try to keep that in mind for all of the cases we we hear, especially uh, cases that involve um, human issues such as uh, child custody and termination of parental rights. You were born in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about your parents and growing up in Memphis. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was a traveling salesman, uh, sold uh, a number of different things over time, uh, probably uh, uh uh, the mo- spent the most time selling books to schools and libraries across the state. His territory included the whole state of Tennessee. My mom was a clerical worker, secretary, and uh, I had a uh, strictly middle class uh, growing up in uh, uh, walking uh, to neighborhood school and uh, playing with my friends uh, in uh, uh, Memphis at that time was a lovely place to grow up. And, uh, and I was in uh, just an uh, uh, area that we would now call starter homes, but that was our forever home and uh, uh, running around with kids in the neighborhood playing. What kind of student were you? I was a very serious student. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Always. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'm sort of just made that way. But um, I actually recognized early on that uh, my parents were very financially challenged. Uh, they didn't make a lot of money. And uh, I went to school with kids uh, who uh, who had a lot more money and it makes a difference in your life, in your everyday life. Um, so I recognized pretty early on that for uh, me to be able to uh, not be in that situation as an adult, I needed to work hard. And so I, I just always have. And that was, so that was something that was instilled in your, you sort of instilled that in yourself, or was that something that was taught from your parents? Um. Some of both. Okay. Uh, my my uh, uh, father, it was an important concept for him for people to be able to have some control over their own destiny. And um, so he instilled that in me, and that's part of how it manifested. He certainly didn't, didn't coach me to make money, but uh, I saw what a difference it made and the kind of insecurity that it caused for for them. So I recognized that uh, I needed to uh, make sure that I did everything that I could to uh, get myself in a better situation. You eventually graduated from Columbia Central High School. How did you get to Columbia? We moved to Columbia um, just before my junior year of high school. Columbia is centrally located in the state. My dad's uh, territory was the state of Tennessee, so he spent uh, his weeks traveling all over the state. 
being in Columbia enabled him to be home more. And uh, when my parents decided to move, they uh, researched where in Middle Tennessee would be a good place uh, to move and uh, found that Columbia had a good school system, uh, had a thriving community, and uh, chose to move us here. Mm. So you graduated but went back to Memphis. Did Memphis always feel like home to you, I suppose, if you were only here uh, your junior and senior year? You went to the University of Memphis, so was that home to you still? Um, I I felt at that point that I had two homes. Hmm. Um, uh, Columbia had become my adopted hometown, Uh, but uh, Memphis, um, uh, the University of Memphis offered me uh, a really good, scholarship. And uh, at that point, I was um, hearkening back to uh, uh, my earlier remarks. I was determined not to um, uh, end up in debt after I uh, graduated from college. And um, uh, the University of Memphis offered me a scholarship in engineering. They were uh, heavily recruiting women at that time, and there were not very many women. Um, and I was good in math and science, um, and it was a scholarship that paid not only my tuition but my living expenses. So uh, uh, I went back to Memphis. Uh, I, always, I felt I really at that point couldn't envision going to uh, college anywhere not in Tennessee, and that's where I got a really good scholarship offer. It's fascinating. I think our listeners will be fascinated to know that despite your stellar legal career, you started off in the maths and sciences with, with engineering. Well, and I want to touch base on that, Tom, because I find that very interesting because I was a math major as well in college. And I wanted to ask you how you think that math and science and that engineering background really helped you in the law profession. It's a great background. Um, it uh, teaches you. It's it's really um, uh, uh, like uh, just like an Olympic athlete trains physically. Uh, the STEM disciplines train your mind, uh, and especially in logic and analysis. Uh, it's very much a problem-solving discipline. Law is surprisingly also a problem-solving mm-hmm. discipline. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it, it, uh, I have found it throughout my life uh, to be um, – have enhanced my ability to really work through a problem step by step by step in a logical way. A lot of uh, colleagues who shall remain nameless, but uh, they uh, have at times kind of leapfrogged to the answer that they thought was correct. And uh, I think partly because of my math background, I start at step one and work through it in a logical way. And I I think it makes me a better judge. What our math teachers would have said, show your work. Yes. It's, it's the work in between that matters, not just the end goal. Right? That's, well, that's exactly it. even my law clerks will tell you now that I, that I have said the same thing to them. Show me your work. <laughs> 
um, graduated first in your class from engineering school. What kind of engineer were you hoping to be? Uh, I was a mechanical engineer, um, uh, but actually I knew um, when I was in high school that I wanted someday to go to law school. Okay. So I actually knew what I wanted to do after college before I knew what my major in uh, my undergraduate major. So interesting. So law was sort of your end goal, but you chose engineering as a path to get there. That's really interesting. Fascinating. Well, Tom, a lot of people think pre-law is taking political science or even taking English. And uh, I agree totally with Justice Kirby. The thing about math and the STEM fields is they give you an analytical approach to things, which is so helpful for you in the law. And it makes you more confident in your decision making mm-hmm. because you feel like you're hitting all the things you need to hit. And, and, and as she said, you got to show your work. Um, and so I, I'm giddy about this, just talking to her, because I was one of the few ones that was a math major that I, when I was in law school, because everybody else was, quote, pre-law, when we all know, and Justice Kirby, you can address this, everything you do is pre-law. <laughs> everything. Yeah. Everything, because really the law touches uh, all parts of people's lives. And I am always very enthusiastic about encouraging young women to consider STEM, the STEM disciplines, really regardless of where they want to end up in their career, because I think it gives you great confidence. Uh, as Judge Sockwell mentioned, you know that you can analyze a problem and sometimes very difficult problems. And uh, uh, it's not just how smooth you are or how glib you are. You know that you can hit it and uh, solve problems in a substantive way. That gives you confidence, I think, in every part of your life. So I, I speak to young women sometimes about the STEM disciplines, and I'm an enthusiastic proponent of that. Very interesting. Uh, so you chose to stay at University of Memphis for law school. Uh, I think uh, your bio said graduated third in your class there. Did you have any idea what kind of law you wanted to practice? Really, uh, um, I was pretty wide open at that uh, at that point, and that's part of why I ended up wanting to uh, clerk for a judge after after law school um, to help me decide what. I wanted to do. So I did not know at that point. Who did you clerk for? I clerked for Judge Harry Welford. On, uh, and I clerked for Judge Welford really at a very interesting time. When I accepted uh, the job position with him, he was a trial judge. Uh, in the federal system, it's called a district judge. Um, uh, but before my clerkship started, uh, the president appointed him to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the appellate court. Um, it ended up that the first part of my clerkship was with Judge Welford as a trial judge. So I was helping him as a trial judge for the first half of my clerk, my one-year clerkship. Second half, he was an appellate judge. And so I got really an eye-opening look at how both kinds of judges operate. Uh, Judge Welford was very politically connected uh, as well. I think he ran the campaigns for uh, Senator Howard Baker successfully and Governor Winfield Dunn in Tennessee. What lessons did you learn from Judge Welford? Or maybe one big lesson that you might have learned from him? Uh, uh, I think that one of the biggest uh, lessons that 
I learned from Judge Walford uh, was that you can be a fierce advocate and uh, a cordial and civil colleague. He he was both. He was the consummate gentleman, but he was also very competitive. And uh, uh, so working with him, I could see how competitive he was uh, and how passionate he was about some of the issues. Uh, but he never failed to be a good listener to other people, uh, never was insulting to them, uh, always respected uh uh, others, uh, including other judges, lawyers, as people, and uh, managed to do his work in uh, an excellent manner that showed respect to all. We need to take our first break. We are speaking with Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Holly Kirby, and you're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram gives thanks to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for the third straight year. Through April, we aim to make this year the best year ever by donating $150 for every vehicle sold. Shop online or at the dealership, and you too can help us honor St. Jude's 60th anniversary. Protect what matters most. You can count on us. Does it really matter where you get your jewelry repaired? Of course it does. When you take your jewelry to a hometown jeweler, you build trust. Hello, I'm Rick Tillis, owner of Tillis Jewelry in downtown Columbia. I started as a goldsmith 30 years ago, and because of my experience and our staff, we ensure all repairs are completed to the highest of expectations. So yes, it does matter who repairs your jewelry. And if you are in need of any type of jewelry repair, please stop by for a free consultation. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. For 40 years, Beck Dental Care has been the personalized and comfortable option for the health of your smile. The caring staff maintains a high level of safety protocols and attention to detail. Advanced technology provides your choice of sedation and the best of dental implant solutions to restore complete oral health. Open until 6 p.m. two nights a week. Call us at 931-388-8452 or visit us online at beckdentalcare.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. 
Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio today by Judge Christopher Sockwell, my co-host for the day. And together we're joined by Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Holly Kirby. Justice Kirby, we're talking about your time uh, in your clerkship. Uh, Following your year-long clerkship uh, with the Honorable Harry W. Welford, uh, you joined the firm of Birch, Porter & Johnson in Memphis. That made me take notice uh, a little bit. That firm was founded way back in 1904. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the firm and why you chose to go there. Uh, Birch, Porter & Johnson was and is an historic firm. Uh, One of the things that was most important to me is uh, uh, the the firm was and is a model of integrity. Um, And I think that is probably the most important characteristic that either a lawyer or a judge must have. And uh, uh, they uh, live that credo every day. So I respected uh, their integrity, their uh, devotion to uh, community service, and uh, not only excellent lawyering, but uh, the obligation of lawyers to give back to their community and serve as community leaders. Um, So I, I, I felt very comfortable. There was a great place to grow up as a lawyer. Uh, there's a Columbia connection you may or may not be aware of with with the firm. Uh, the name Birch in the title, of course, comes from Charles Birch, who is one of the founders of that. But his nephew took over the practice after the three initial partners passed away. Lucius Birch was his name. His family roots actually started here in Murray County. He's the I great, did not great, know that. He's the great-great-grandson of Lucius Junius Polk. Uh, the best man in James K. Polk's wedding, uh, and a man who himself was married in Andrew Jackson's White House uh, to Jackson's niece, who was one of the official hostesses of the White House during the Jackson administration. It's fascinating that Lucius Polk, his great-great-grandfather, was a part of the white aristocratic slaveholding elite in the South, yet his great-grandson, Lucius Birch, is remembered today as one of Tennessee's greatest civil rights lawyers. Uh, he was chosen by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King Jr. to assist in navigating the effects of the violence that came about from the sanitation workers' strike in 1968. Uh, rallying support to hold a nonviolent march, it was Birch who gained King's permit to hold the march. Uh, he was just successfully accomplishing that task when King was assassinated uh, in, in 1968. So the, that firm that you belong to had some roots here in a place where you had spent some time here, here in Murray County. What type of law did you practice with Birch, Porter & Johnson? Uh, I ended up practicing um, employment law and uh, had a subspecialty in sexual harassment. And this was uh, when... Uh, really, the whole concept of sexual harassment um, was just uh, being birthed, so to speak. Um, I mean, when I was in college, uh, I, I worked at engineering firms, and uh, they didn't know <laughs> that sexual harassment was uh, not a good thing to do. And um, uh, uh, if you've ever watched uh, Mad Men, I mean, that's... Uh, 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 so that's the work environment that a lot of women uh, were in. But when I uh, uh, started out as a young lawyer, uh, it was a new concept. And uh, I 
uh, represented both plaintiffs and defendants and did a lot of uh, training of clients including uh, and investigating claims of sexual harassment. So uh, it was really a very interesting area to be uh, uh, to be specializing in right at the beginning. Wow. And what a change now you've seen in, in the time that you've been practicing law and being on the bench. Those concepts you mentioned, Mad Men, which I haven't watched very much of, but I understand what you're, you're saying. That's very foreign to most people's thinking now. And you're sort of at the very beginning stages of that. That's a I think an important accomplishment. It is. It is cool to think about and to see the difference. It's gratifying to see the differences because uh, originally, when I would talk to clients, uh, <laughs> they would say, "What? You can't do that? <laughs> What's wrong with that? Um, that's people's private choices and things like that." And now we recognize that there's a a power dynamic in. Uh, in the workplace that really makes it fundamentally unfair for sexual harassment to take place. Um, and I, I think it's pretty uh, settled in the collective psyche now. I think people get it. Uh, they may not always abide by it, but they get it. And uh, when I first started out, they didn't get it, and they needed it explained to them at length. Hmm. After seven years in 1990, you were made a partner in the firm, the first woman partner in the firm that now prides itself on diversity. Um, 1990 seems to be a tipping point in Tennessee for diversity. It's that same year that the first woman joins the Tennessee Supreme Court with the appointment of Martha Craig Daughtry. Were you aware of the significance of that change at the time? Perhaps you were keenly aware, given your legal background and dealing with things like sexual harassment. Were women... women coming to the forefront more? Did you notice it in 1990? I certainly noticed it. Um, when uh, when I was in uh, college, um, uh, I actually started thinking about becoming a judge when I was in college. And uh, at that point, that was before... Uh, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of England. That was before Sandra Day O'Connor was the first female justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. There were not uh, very many powerful women role models at that at that point. Uh, and in fact, my uh, college boyfriend uh, thought that uh, when I told him about that secret ambition he told his fraternity brothers and they had a great laugh about that at my really <laughs> they thought it was hilarious and it was preposterous there was nobody out there who was doing that um to his credit when i became a judge later he called me up and said by golly you did it but um but later uh as uh uh women role models became prominent that was important. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, Julia Gibbons uh, is the first uh, female trial judge in Tennessee, and she was right there in Memphis when she was appointed to the district court. Um, uh, she took Judge Welford's place as a trial judge, and I made it my business to get to know her and uh, adopted her as my mentor. Mm. So uh, yes, having uh, visible women in uh, positions of power and authority 
was significant to me just as it is significant to all women today. Since 1990, the Tennessee Supreme Court has had a female presence on the bench, and currently of the five justices, three are women. Is there a difference in the court when there's a female majority, do you think? Or are women and men similar when bound by the mandates of the law? I have, uh, on the... On the Tennessee Supreme Court, uh, uh, since I have been on it, it has always been majority female, but always very collegial, too. Um, We have differences, and I I think that women do bring a different perspective, uh, just in in, in the sense that having a variety of life experiences on on, uh, a court that's a, that's making collective decisions is is healthy. I do see a difference in perspective when most of the time when I was on the intermediate appellate court, I was in fact the whole time I was the only woman on the panels that I was on, and uh, it's just a different uh, different dynamic and a different perspective. I think it's healthy. Justice Kirby, after talking about the significance of what you did when you first started practicing law, being the first court of appeals judge, uh, first female court of appeals judge. And now we're at a point where we've had a majority number of females on the Supreme Court. Uh, What kind of satisfaction do you take in that after this last appointment of our new justice, and it remains a three to two court, that it's, it's normal now? That we don't make a big deal that this is the first female judge or this is the first female majority that when a, a Supreme Court justice is appointed and it's a female, it's a normal thing. It's not we don't treat it as a big deal because it's not anymore. I love it. I love it. It feels uh, so comfortable uh, for much of my career. Uh, I, I uh, have always been able to be great friends with men and very comfortable with them. Uh, but you're always conscious of the fact that you're the only woman or maybe there's two. Um, uh, but to be in a situation where it's almost unremarkable that uh, uh, that you're a, a, a woman in this position is uh, is uh, is so gratifying. And yet uh, I still see. Um, Young women, uh, many times we go to see, for example, Girl State is an important institution in in Tennessee, and those young women uh, still need female role models, and it's very important to them. Um, so I I I love the fact that there are more of us, and uh, and that people can see a great variety in the kinds of women who. Uh, who achieve um, uh, positions of power and authority, including uh, ethnic minorities, too. Uh, I think it's really important uh, to have them as role models as well. And, and that brings me to this subject. We had the Scales Project here just a few months ago, and it was so gratifying to see the, all of those young people. We had over 700 that showed up that listened to the arguments uh, to you and the other Supreme Court justices. But afterwards, when we had the lunch, y'all were like rock stars, and especially you, because they knew you were from Columbia. And, of course, 
Tom had found your high school graduation photo <laughs> and made a uh, made a point of having that in front of everybody. But it was it was fascinating to see the reaction of these high school kids, uh, how they reacted to y'all. If you could just touch on that a little bit. Um. Uh, first of all, I was gobsmacked by the whole event. There was uh, a whole auditorium full of kids and faculty members, and uh, what a homecoming for me to be able to uh, be in the auditorium in uh, Columbia Central High and be uh, welcomed back to my adopted hometown and and celebrated. It, it just felt fabulous. And uh, it, I am so grateful uh, to be able to connect with young people and get them thinking about what they're going to do with their lives. You don't know the home situations of any of the kids you meet, and you don't know who they've been exposed to. Um, for some of them to be able to imagine themselves as part of the judicial system, part of the the entire state's um, system for adjudicating disputes among people, they start to think about their own lives and start to envision uh, themselves in a different situation. And uh, I love seeing the spark in their eyes. You can see the light bulb go off. And uh, it it was, uh, I'm, I'm grateful every time I have the opportunity to do it. In 1995, you were appointed to the Tennessee Court of Appeals, as you said, the first woman to hold a seat on that bench. The State Court of Appeals was created by the Tennessee General Assembly in 1925 to hear appeals of civil cases from trial courts. There are 12 members of that court who sit in three panels. Can you give me an example of a case that you tried in that court? Or maybe even just the type of case that that you tried there? Gosh, uh Really, uh, uh, the variety of cases that we handled was just staggering. Um, as a lawyer, I was a specialist, uh, but as a judge, you have to be the ultimate generalist. And uh, I would hear uh, a business dispute one day, uh, a car wreck uh, the next, a uh, divorce the next and uh, uh, medical malpractice after that and then an estate case and uh, just a huge variety of of uh, of cases and uh, so many different types of people really uh, frankly my background in uh, Columbia was so helpful. To that, I had grown up in Memphis in an urban environment, but living in Columbia gave me an appreciation for uh, uh, the lives of people who live in small towns and in rural settings uh, because we handled all of those types of cases across the whole state. So uh, being, again, trying to be connected to the humanity of these cases Having exposure to people in a lot of different life circumstances uh, was very, very helpful. It would require a huge amount of knowledge that you would have to gain for all of these varied types of 
of cases that come before you. How, how does that process unfold? Do you have assistants that help gather research for you that you're just taking in for information or are you having to dig in as well? I run an archive, so I love research and, and uh, how, how people do it is different from person to person. I'm curious, how did, how did you handle gaining that kind of knowledge? I I have to do um, I have to do some of my own. Certainly, I uh, re- rely very heavily on uh, staff, on law clerks. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm the one who makes the decision, and I'm the one who has to understand the legal landscape. So uh, it's a lot of work. Um, I, I do have, I have to, uh, I am a quick study. I've had to become a quick study over, over time. I have to, uh, oftentimes learn a new area of law. And I know Judge Sockwell has to do the same thing. You encounter a case, uh, and it's in an area of law that you don't know anything about and you have to learn it real fast. So, uh, I'm, uh, I've, Developed a lot of mus a lot a very muscular ability to uh, to be a quick study. With your appointment in 1995, you were up for retention elections in 1996. You went on to win elections again in 1998 and 2006. Explain how retention elections work. I think a lot of listeners don't understand that judges aren't appointed for life. Uh, that uh, in some cases you're you're up for these elections. How do how do they work in Tennessee? Um. Uh, I think people need to understand that there is a state uh, judicial system and there's a federal judicial system. Uh, often they hear about federal judges who are appointed for life. State judges are all elected in one type of election or another. In Tennessee, trial judges like Judge Sockwell are uh, in contested elections where uh, an opponent will pull a petition and file and run an active campaign against you. In Tennessee, we have retention elections for appellate judges, for the Intermediate Appellate Court and the Supreme Court. Uh, For those elections, voters are given the choice of retain or replace. So uh, we are out campaigning uh, not against a named opponent, but really against uh, uh, populations' inability to know what judges do and know get information about individual appellate judges. And uh, many times uh, voters will approach it not... Uh, not knowing anything about the people whose names are are on the ballot, and so they will bring their own life experiences, whether they think judges are all good or all bad, and they'll make assumptions and vote based on that. So we are campaigning uh, across the state really to put a, a face together with a name uh, and to um, let voters get to know us and understand their choice between retain or replace, and we hope that they will vote to retain for uh, as we are campaigning. We need to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Justice Kirby and talk about the Tennessee Supreme Court. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. 
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, this is Steve, the Garbage Man. Our company, The Garbage Man Incorporated, has been advertising on WKOM and WKRM for years now, and as a result, our company has really grown. Now we're looking for young, healthy, hardworking people to grow with us. We are in need of drivers and helpers. We pay serious money. So if you like outside work and want to work for a great local company, call me at 931-540-0919 and let's talk. Hey folks, this is Chandler Anderson from the Right Care Walk-In Clinics. Hey guys, we're open 11 to 11, seven days a week so that you don't have to go wait at the emergency room when you have an urgent care need. Our providers are all emergency medicine experienced or critical care experienced, and we're there to take care of you so that you're not caught at the emergency department for hours and hours on end. Folks, seven days a week, right in front of Walmart, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., we stay late so you don't have to wait at the ER. Serving Murray County for 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has provided the highest quality jewelry at the very best prices. They work hard to make their customers happy, and it's paid off. Their customers keep going back. Quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. We offer jewelry loans up to $4,500, and we will buy your gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still the same. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Terrence here at Shepherd Lumberyard, where we value you, the customer. We've been serving Columbia and surrounding areas since 1946. We're located in our new location at 103 Cemetery Avenue. Anything that has to do with building or remodeling, we're here to assist. When you shop local, you help shape the community. We are locally owned, family owned, and veteran owned. And by the way, God is in charge. You can reach us at 931-388-3612. And our website is shepherdlumberyard at yahoo.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today I have joining us in the studio, uh, Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Holly Kirby. Justice Kirby, we uh, ended before break talking about your time on the Tennessee Court of Appeals. In 2014, after almost 19 years uh, on that court, you were selected and sworn into the Tennessee Supreme Court by Governor Bill Haslam. Um, can you explain how you were chosen? How does a Supreme Court justice get appointed to the position? Tennessee's system is for uh, the governor to choose uh, to nominate uh, um, uh, persons to the Tennessee Supreme Court, and now they are confirmed by the legislature. 
I was actually chosen by the governor uh, just before the legislative confirmation system went into effect. So uh, I was simply appointed by Governor Haslam to the Tennessee Supreme Court and sworn into office. Was there a vacancy, I assume, uh, that you were filling? Yes. Uh, Justice Janice Holder decided to retire. Uh, The uh, uh, governor appointed a uh, commission to advise him and give him uh, the names of Three, the three most qualified candidates uh, that they recommended that he um, uh, choose among. And uh, I was one of the three. And uh, Governor Haslam took those appointments very seriously and uh, really vetted candidates uh, a great deal. And we all went to the governor's mansion to be uh, to, excuse me, to the Capitol to be interviewed by the governor's legal counsel and by uh, the governor himself. And they did a lot of background work on us as well, studying the cases and ha- our judicial philosophy and how we decided cases. I think it'd be interesting, especially for our young listeners. What did it feel like to be selected to Tennessee's highest court? When you finally got that appointment, what did it feel like? I was giddy. Uh, it was, uh, I was so elated. Um, it, it's um, uh, something that as a high school student, uh, I could not have imagined. And uh, I wished very much that my parents had been there to see because it, um, uh, I felt them looking at me as it happened. Mm. I find that interesting because you've been describing yourself as a very very goal-oriented person up until this point, but this wasn't on your radar. To to get to the highest point in Tennessee's judicial arena, that was not part of the plan. Well, a wish is not uh, necessarily knowing that it will be real. Uh, Certainly, I was goal-oriented, but there's a lot of people out there who dream big and uh, for me to be able to uh, actually be in a position such as this um, was just exhilarating. The state Supreme Court is the state's court of last resort. The five justices may accept appeals of civil and criminal cases from lower state courts. They also interpret the laws and constitutions of Tennessee and the United States. Now, there are no juries or witnesses or testimony, as you said already. How are cases heard and decided in the Supreme Court? They are decided uh, based on uh, the the record generated by the trial judges, on the briefs of the lawyers and the lawyers' arguments and any of the students out there can watch our arguments. We live stream the arguments, and they are archive, archived on the uh, website of the administrative office office of of the of the courts. Lawyers are given a half hour each hmm. uh, to argue 
their case before the Tennessee Supreme Court, and it is a hot bench, I will tell you. Hot bench means that you've got uh, judges who are engaged and who are asking asking hard questions, and by golly, these lawyers get that. Um, it's it's a pretty fast-moving half hour, and uh, you get to see a lot of pitching and a lot of catching. <laughs> and your decisions are written. Yes. How much time do you take? Is there a set time that you have to return a verdict, or can you take your time and write your opinions? Um, we have a set time that we aim for, but uh, the cases vary so widely, and uh, some of them, uh, everybody agrees pretty quickly on what the decision needs needs to be, and we can get the opinion out pretty quickly. Other times, uh, we disagree among ourselves, and uh, it may take uh, a number of months to, for the court to get out its 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 written opinion. And there may be more than one opinion. If uh, judges disagree, there may be a majority opinion. There may be a dissent. There may be even more than that. You have about eight years under your belt on the Supreme Court. About how many opinions have you written? Well, uh, on the Court of Appeals, I wrote over a thousand opinions. Uh, there's the rate is much less on the Tennessee Supreme Court because our cases are bigger and there's fewer of them. So I don't know how many cases that I have written on the Tennessee Supreme Court. It's probably. Uh, uh, 12 to 15 per year, I would say. We talked a little about women's roles in the law. It's interesting to me that as you look at the state of Tennessee at the trial court level, 25% of the judges are women. 18 of the state's 31 judicial districts have at least one woman judge and eight have more than one. Is Tennessee where it needs to be in terms of diversity within the judicial system? Tennessee is getting there. Uh, but I think that we need more diversity um, in terms of gender and also in terms of ethnicity. That's that's it's it's um, part of the challenge uh, of our system of government is that it requires the consent of the governed. That means that people have to have confidence in their government and that their government is uh, comprised of people who are trying to be fair. Part of that perception, I think, is that, is having the decision makers mirror the population uh, as closely as possible. So I think that Tennessee has come a long way, but we have uh, a little ways to go as well. Who have been your greatest influences or inspirations in your career? I think uh, two important inspirations uh, were the judge that I clerked for, Harry Welford, on the Sixth Circuit as a model of integrity, and uh, Judge Julia Gibbons out of, Men out of Memphis, whom I mentioned is uh, a national leader. Um, she's now on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and uh, is a model for every woman judge, every woman leader. Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Holly Kirby, thank you for spending an hour with us here on History's Hook. 
I end the show with a quote, as I often do. Rarely has the quote come directly from our guest, but today's does. Power does not come to the woman who waits for someone to recognize her abilities. Power comes to the woman who sets a path for herself and goes to get it. Important words from an important Tennessean. Thank you to my co-host, Judge Christopher Sockwell, and as always, thank you to our listeners. You can hear all of our History Hook episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us again next week, won't you, as we continue to connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time.